You know, I've told this story many times before in terms of like what my actual UFO initiation was, but um, it never really gets old for me because I I still remember the feelings I had during that event. And that's kind of where all of my UFO work has led me is to the feelings and the the way these events change people as it did for me. So, yeah, I'm always willing to talk about um, kind of how I got into it. I was 12 years old. Uh, it was 1995. I was fishing off the St. Lawrence River, uh, which was literally the boundary, as I'm sure you know, being in Canada, uh, between Canada and New York State. And, um, you know, I'd go up there with my parents every summer for a couple weeks and we'd stay at the Fisherman's Wharf Motel. And uh, it's gone now. I've recently I've gone to check up, and it's gone. It's like some luxury condo BS now. It sounds but, like some out of like an '80s movie. I know, very Stephen King esque or something. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was fun, man. I just I remember I was I'd go up there with them. I would uh, I had my discman, so I would just listen to like album after album of Green Day and like I don't know whatever I was into back in the the mid nineties and just fish for hours. I loved doing that. Um, uh, other than that, I was a baseball player. So it was like either sports or music for me. I wasn't into UFOs. I never had an interest in them uh, before that night. And um, it, it was crazy, man. Um, I saw a reflection of lights in the water I was fishing off of, and I had no idea what it was. So I kind of bent over, looked down in the water, thought something was down there until I realized it was a reflection. So, you know, I, I look up and boom, like my life changed in that moment. Um, I saw a formation of lights in a perfect equilateral triangle, uh, three white lights on each point and kind of a weird uh, burning, almost red orange light in the middle kind of this prototypical triangular UFO, as many people have reported throughout the decades. Uh, but for me, I didn't see like a machine or a structure. So I can't tell you if it was an actual craft or not, but it was a perfect triangle. And it just was above me, silent, no noise. You know, I ripped my headphones off, see if I could hear anything. And all I could hear at that point was like the water hitting the dock, which really made me uneasy. So I'm like, what the heck is above me? Um, if it was a plane, I would hear it. If it was a helicopter, I would hear it. Uh, nothing. Uh, and that was that was it, man. I was terrified. I didn't know what I was looking at. And how far would you gauge this? Uh, these lights from where you were standing? Yeah, I mean, I, I get asked that a lot in terms of like size and, and distance. And I never can give a solid answer for that because I honestly don't remember. There are aspects of the event I really remember, how I felt, um, the lights. And other than that, I wasn't like, I wasn't an analytical person when I was seeing this thing. Again, I was 12. I had absolutely no idea what the hell was going on. Um, If I had to guess, um, I would say maybe it was a few hundred feet up um, just by, you know, the, the trees around me, right. um, where it was and all that. But I couldn't tell you, man. I couldn't tell you how big it was, how far away it was. Um, 
Yeah, that 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 always frustrates me, and I'm it fresh me frustrates me when witnesses can't tell me those specifics either. But, but, uh, I'm but just, you said you said a big detail in of itself because you said the way that you felt. Yeah. So the way that you felt usually is this big detail because that's one of the main things that we remember is whether it was fear or awe. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what happened to you then after that? Like, did you become obsessed with UFOs? Did you stay quiet? Yeah. So. I try. I I like making this point because I was not the only one there, and that's you know again one of the first questions I ask witnesses is, "Did anyone else see this? Can anyone corroborate this story?" Um, because that just that's almost fifty percent of the work right there is having another person to back you up, and I did. My father actually saw this thing, so he was inside watching a Yankees game at the motel at the time, and like nothing gets this dude away from from a baseball game, I swear. Again, like he he was trying to make me into the next um, I don't know, um, Joe Carter. Oh, that's like, why you're playing baseball. Yes. Yeah, okay, man. I, gotcha. I, I was gonna be the next cleanup hitter for the Yankees. That's what he wanted. <laughs> Little did he know I was about to become a ufologist. Yeah, yeah. Uh but yeah, it was um it was interesting. He came out, uh, you know, I got a little 12-year-old squeal out and said, Dad, come look at this. And he comes out. And when he came out, what was really interesting, dude, is it was just hovering above me. It wasn't moving or anything. But as soon as my dad came out, and again, I don't know if this is intentional of what we, we were looking at or coincidence, it started moving. And it started moving over the water and onto the other side to Canada. So we both just watched in awe as the formation of lights floated over the water and then disappeared into the distance. And I just remember looking at my dad, looking up at him and seeing the look on his face. And it wasn't like, um, Oh, my son's an idiot. He saw a plane or this or that. Like he could not explain what this was. And again, you're looking at your parent to kind of, uh, demystify this and explain it away. And he just couldn't. Um, and yeah, I became obsessed after that. Uh, I had nightmares about the, that night for many years. Uh, only a year later when I was 13 is when I really got like deep into it. I started going to the Monday branch library in Syracuse, New York, where I lived and uh, taking out the books, man. Stanton Friedman, um, Crash at Corona, uh, what have you. Anything UFOs, anything Loch Ness Monster, that back section of the library, I just became obsessed and uh yeah and then that that was it for me the journey has been crazy ever since the one book that i could never get out was communion Mm. the cover just creeped me out too much i finally read it about three years ago Mm -hmm. but it took me this long to read the bloody book all because of the cover (laughs) i know it is so iconic and i i'm the same way i think i've got three different editions of it now one from england one from here and somewhere else i think like germany maybe and every cover just those eyes man they're so penetrating and um i don't know what happened to that guy but it was something it was definitely something and that book changed everything in pop culture so yeah it did and the one detail that he says the most which i always think of is uh the sense of smell saying uh, you know can i smell you yeah he asked the the entity what what, when they asked him like what can we do to make you stop screaming he said can i smell you (laughs) And I always thought, well, yeah, that's probably what I would ask. Yeah. You know, the sense of smell is very close to uh, that part of your brain that remembers stuff, right? So 
I wish I knew the technical term. I should probably look it up. I've said it like four times on the podcast, and <laughs> I still can't. I still don't know the name of it. But smell is a huge, huge thing. Um, and I always wonder how that, you know, in ufology, you never really hear that much. You don't. That's such a yeah. good point. I never really thought about that. Uh, smell triggers so many memories in our lives and make us feel deja vu and make us remember certain things. And Back you, in grandma's kitchen, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you got to wonder, maybe back in... Uh, uh alien gray's examination room they don't want you to remember that and they 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 mask it i can't tell you brother but that's a really interesting observation i haven't really looked into much because some people have said like the inside of the ship smells musty or like a bit like dirt yeah yeah. Right. So, you know, if I figured if I was in there, I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to wipe my memory. And <laughs> <laughs> start, sn- <laughs> start sniffing everything. Yeah. The table. <laughs> I'm going to remember this. Uh, like, what is this guy on Coke? What's going on here? <laughs> we should examine that. Every time we get this guy, he acts weird. I swear to God, he creeps <laughs> me out. <laughs> so then uh, you grow up. I mean, you're reading this stuff. Uh, you wrote two books on the subject. Uh, you're an investigator. You have a podcast. You've been on so many different programs. It might be weird for you to hear this, but you're technically going up into the world expert on the subject. What's your origin on that? Like, when did you decide, hey, I'm going to start investigating this on my yeah. own? Um, well, you know, and I don't laugh to uh, make light of the situation. I take my UFO work very, very seriously, which I hope is, uh, you know, shows in the work that I do. I take it very seriously. We can laugh about, you know, abductions and everything because you do have to have some levity when it comes to these subjects. You have to, man. Um, But uh, it didn't take long. Uh, I will tell you, my first interview with a witness, with an eyewitness of a UFO event was when I was 13. Um, You know, through the grapevine, I had learned about a gentleman, uh, a Vietnam veteran, actually, um, who lived in Syracuse, New York, where I grew up, uh, who had had a very dramatic UFO sighting, a very Foo Fighters-esque sighting um, over the Pacific Ocean back during Vietnam. And um, I was so nervous, man. When I finally got this guy on the phone, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, there was no um, MUFON manual that I knew of when I was 13. or <laughs> I don't know. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. But I talked to this guy on the phone for almost two hours and maybe like 20 minutes of it was about the UFO event, but the rest of it was about this dude's incredible military career, which uh, um, I highly respected his, the service that he did. And um, that I took down everything I could. And it took me a really long time to kind of transcribe everything from memory. Cause you know, again, I was 13. I didn't know how to record a phone call or anything like that. <laughs> so um, it was but the fact that you're 13 doing this. is oh amazing. Right? Well, yeah. thank you. I, I tried brother. And um, I wrote everything down. I put it all into what I assumed a report would look like. And I handed it in to my middle school English teacher. Because that was the only person of authority I knew at the time of like, what do I do with this thing? And I ended up, it was part of some like project in English of like, talk about something you're interested in. Well, clearly I was now interested in UFOs and I will say I got an A on the project. So um, I did something right, at least in terms of grammar and English. But uh, the guy actually died like a few months after that phone call. I mean, he was in his 80s at that point. And um, it was, I was so honored that like for the very first time, this guy put his trust into a 13-year-old kid to tell about this UFO story that he hadn't talked about to anyone else. And um, 
that was the heavy weight that witness testimony kind of had on me at that young age. And again, that's what I wanted to focus on moving forward was interviewing other people who had UFO experiences and how it affected their lives because it only validated what I had seen and made me feel, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. You know, um, other people are experiencing these things and military people nonetheless. So yeah, 13, man, I was, I was ready to go. It's crazy because I was speaking to Richard. Um, oh, Richard Hoffman. Yes. yes, at the SCU. I am so yeah. bad with names, Ryan. It's unbelievable. There's there's a lot of them, man, in this field. Get used to it. Names, oh, dates. Oh, yeah. Name tags <laughs> are going to be my, my saving grace in the future yeah. for sure. But uh, he was talking about um, uh, something very similar to you where he was 13 years old and he started investigating things and ended up working on the case that Heineck was working on as well and that wow. like he started at such a young age at the age of 13 investigating these big cases and you know you look back at pictures that he posted on facebook and stuff you're like man that's crazy at 13 i wasn't even thinking of that yeah right so the fact that you guys were doing that at that age i mean that that's profound and that you're still doing it now that's the thing it's 2021 mm-hmm. right it's the 90s you know was a great decade yeah, it was yeah, an awesome was. decade. Yeah, <laughs> I miss the '90s for sure. I, I'm still wearing flannel like no one's business. But um, oh, yeah, well, well, let me touch on that, man, because I think that's important. The reason I'm still doing this is because there is a genuine mystery. I would have gotten out of this like in college when I, you know, I I ended up going to school for theater and um and acting, directing, and writing and stuff like that. Um, but I still always had this UFO interest in the back of my mind and continue to research and investigate and interview. And that's because I firmly believe there is a legitimate phenomenon or phenomena, I should say, occurring. And that's why I'm still doing this. Otherwise, I would have moved on a long time ago because this is a frustrating field. Um, it's messy. Um, it's, again, there's more questions than there will ever be answers. And a lot of people don't want to be a part of something like that. They want the answers. And I'm kind of fine just chasing the mystery. And that's why I'm still doing it. What I liked is that you came up with the podcast. Was it the podcast, the idea first, or was it the book that was the idea first? Uh, it was the book. Uh, so the first edition of Somewhere in the Skies came out in um, 2016. And uh, that was after I had been writing about UFOs for, you know, websites and um, magazines and whatnot. And as time went on, I, I was frustrated that I only had limited space to talk about these things. You know, with an article, they're like, yo, 2,000 words at most, man. We know you're going to write 4,000, so edit it down. Um, I wanted to expand that and really show what I was capable of as a writer, because I did believe I had something to contribute to this field. And that was a book about the experiencers and the witnesses. And yeah, of course, like we've had books like that in the past. Um, I can't pretend I'm the first to cover something like that. But I really wanted to go in depth and put a microscope on the people and how it affected them. So I wrote the book in 2016 and uh, I had to edit out so much, man. I mean, I interviewed hundreds upon hundreds of people and I could only fit so many into a into a cohesive book. And I felt really bad about that. I feel I owed it to these people who trusted me to tell their stories. So I wanted to continue it somehow, some way. And that's when the idea for the podcast came around. Like there, 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 like weekly, 
or monthly, I can have an episode of just people telling their UFO stories. Because for some people, that's all they want is for someone to listen. And as the podcast grew, more and more people listened to these people. So I feel like, um, yeah, the podcast kind of came as a, um, a companion to the book. Well, it has been a good surprise for the community because that was something that, you know, but podcasts, you know, even when you started it, uh, is relatively new. Uh, and the fact that we were able to find something like, oh, we can actually hear more about stories we've never heard before, mm-hmm. people coming forward. I mean, there's also a lot of podcasts out there are sort of saying like the same stuff. Uh, you know, they're trying to go back over cases that we've all explored a thousand times over. But it's the new experiences that like those are the, you know, I, like I said, I would be driving, listening to your podcast and then listening to the person that was on explaining uh, their story. And to me, it's as if you guys are in the car with me and that you trust me to, to, to listen in on this conversation. And that openness is really what, you know, for me, attracted me to the podcast was that, you know, there's obviously something about you that they're comfortable with you to share this experience. And some of these experiences are, you know, they're just weird or uncomfortable for some people. So for them to trust you like that, to be able to come on and just you know, spill the beans, like it's helping out some people that might be listening to it that are never going to yeah, come well, forward. Thank you. I appreciate that. And um, that's what I really wanted to do with it. And again, that's the people that trusted me. Like I, I'm just a relayer of their stories. So they are the real, you know, they're the true heroes. <laughs> if they, you want to put a, a cliche on it. Um, and I, I do pride myself on gaining trust of individuals who are in a very vulnerable place. And I think that comes from empathy. And that's what I learned from my mentor, uh, UFO researcher, Peter Robbins, was when I told him I really wanted to get into this and I was all in, um, he said, great, you have to have empathy. Remember that first and foremost, every time you interview one of these people, you're not there to judge them. You're not there to even tell them what they experienced. Like I'm not a field investigator. I'm not here to debunk your case or um, even find an explanation. I'm here to listen and I'm here to get it out there if that's what you want to do. So when the book came around, that was my first question to every person who agreed to be in the book is, are you willing to use your real name? Uh, Because I think that's a big problem and detriment in the UFO field is uh, pseudonyms and, um, you know, sources that we can never say who they are. And I understand from a journalistic standpoint that that's necessary in many ways. But with the book, I said, look, if you're going to be in the book, you got to use your real name because you have to be okay with that. And that is going to compel other people to come forward and be like, let's just embrace this, no matter how weird it is. Like if we're willing to talk about it, and uh, whatever, put our reputation on the line, that shows that this is a true legitimate thing happening. And so many people were willing to do that. And I truly thank them for that. What I also like is the fact that you had a mentor. So the fact that you had a mentor, how did that play out? How did you meet? This guy is literally my soul brother. And I don't say that lightly. Like he might be a few decades older than me, but I swear like we're cut from the same cloth Um, in every way. Um, I first learned about Peter when I first learned about the Rendlesham Forest incident of 1980. Uh, Now, Peter was a co-author on probably one of the first books to come out on that famous case. Now, Uh, granted his co-author is a very controversial figure in the entire case. Many people question if 
his co-author was even involved with the case. Um, and that will be a debate probably till the end of time, uh, which most of ufology is anyways. But um, I read the book and it astounded me uh, that this, you know, over what, 30, 40, 50 military personnel witnessed a UFO landing in England and uh, it had been covered up. And I was like, what? How is no one talking about this? And, uh, you know, I researched Peter after that. And uh, found out that he lived in uh, New York, where I lived. And I just, you know, I threw that Hail Mary. I'm like, yeah, he has no idea who I am. I'm just a dude interested in UFOs. But um, let me see if he'll answer me. And I, I found an email. I reached out to him. And I said, if you're ever in New York City, I'd love to, um, you know, grab a beer or coffee with you. And he said, well, funny you mentioned that. I'm from New York City. I go there all the time. I actually give tours of the city to people, historical tours. And I'll tell you, man, if you're ever in New York and you want to know the true history of this, you know, that amazing city, he's the man to do it with. Um, but yeah, that was it. So we uh, we struck up a friendship. I met him in New York at a diner um, and we had some coffee, talked UFOs. And then I learned that he actually came from the theater world, which again is what I studied in college and the reason I was living in New York City. I was a struggling artist, you know, waiting tables during the day and writing plays and auditioning. And um, it was just meant to be. This dude was a UFO researcher. He came from the theater world. And um, that's when it dawned on me. I'm like, I want to mix the, my worlds together. And I decided I wanted to write a stage play about the Rendlesham Forest incident. And um that has been a crazy journey that is yet to see the light of day, but uh, I'm still developing the play and um, the rest is history. What was the flashlight budget for that? <laughs> it was pretty big, <laughs> brother. Again, I can't even imagine bringing that script to a producer and being like, yeah, do a, do a UFO landing on stage. I dare you. But um, yeah. hey, we've got helicopters in Miss Saigon. We've got, you know, the chandelier falling in Phantom of the Opera. Why can't we have a UFO landing on a stage, you know? Simple, you know, just at the same ball drop that they have, you know, every New yep. Year's. You just bore that, light the heck out exactly. of it. Exactly. Just use that. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that was my uh, story of Peter, and he's just become an incredible mentor since then. Because I want to cover the topics too of books, because I'm an avid reader of books. And recently, I've been reading Confrontations by Jacques Vallée. Uh, oh, it's. You know, and he really, I started highlighting some section because he actually gives some really good tips to investigators, want to be investigators, but it's also filled with wisdom because you could tell it's like from experience that he he went through the motions. He did get fooled on some cases. My my biggest fear, Ryan, is to get fooled on a case or to believe, you know, let's say three years from now, like a case, I want it to be so real and, and hooked up on it because I've seen that happen to other uh, researchers in the past. And sometimes mm -hmm. it tarnishes their career to a point where I think it's stupid, especially in this field, that if you're wrong once, everything else you ever talked about must be crap. So, you know, like right. people got shot down so much. And so that's my biggest fear. Uh, when you come down to like investigating or looking at backgrounds of, of people, what have you found is the best approach for you, Ryan, not to get tricked into like something that might be a con or a hoax? Because you're getting to that level now where people are going to try to do that, right, at some point. Mm -hmm. So what do you do uh, as, as an investigator to make sure you mitigate that from happening? Yeah, I mean, and you're right. Like, there are times I have been lied to uh, and or people have been less than honest. And um, you kind of just 
get used to that. Um, I don't think there's any one way to approach it. For me, again, because I'm dealing with witnesses and witness testimony, like there's not a lot I can back up and neither can the witnesses. You know, these events can last for mere seconds. Uh, They didn't get a photo. They don't have video. There's nothing they can really prove to me that this happened. So um, I know for a fact that probably some of the people I've interviewed in the past, um, some of them have fabricated things or someone might be uh, delusional or fantasy prone. Uh, It comes down to a gut feeling for me. And I think a lot of humans, um, especially when it comes to detectives and stuff, like they have that innate ability to know when someone's either lying or whatnot. I mean, I, again, I, I, I don't know how to analyze people's facial expressions <laughs> or, or know f- yeah. for a fact if they're telling the truth or not. Like if I did, I would definitely be working at the FBI. But um, for me, it really comes down to a gut feeling of if this person's being honest or not. And I will try to trip people up. Um, That's something I've learned from several MUFON field investigators is, okay, someone came to you with a pretty, you know, extraordinary story. Um, Try, you know, go back to it time and time again, call them up on a whim so they're not really prepared for it and try to trip them up. Uh, See if they're telling the truth. And um, I have done that. And sometimes I'll say, okay, so, you know, this, the UFO event, it happened on uh, this date. And uh, yeah, tell me again, like, what were the lights like? And I'll give the wrong, a wrong date of when it happened. And if they say, no, 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 it happened on this date. um, I'll be like, okay, that's step one. Like they're firm on the date and then kind of, kind of doing that. And a lot of investigators do that. And it's not so much, you're um, trying to do a gotcha on them. It's, I want to know if you're actually telling me the truth. And a lot of it for me comes down to people who tell the same story every single time. Uh, That for me says um, they really have nothing to hide. um, That, you know, they're pretty firm on the facts and that's what I go with. But, you know, the same argument could be made if they're on such a, strict script as well that maybe that's just what they're doing they memorized it so well so it really does go both ways so i don't know man i i can't pretend to have an answer but for me it comes down to a gut feeling probably experience as well like the more you do it the more you become fluent at it right like you sort of pick it up right away much more so than a newer investigator right absolutely and there have been times where witnesses have told me the same exact story as another witness. And I'm talking down to like um, the very minute detail. So for me, that's not a pattern of a same event. That's they literally ripped this story from somebody else oh. and they're trying to make it their own. So that will happen too. Like I'll be like, uh, that's a good one. That yeah, didn't hit- I don't <laughs> think so. Yeah. I've heard that one before uh, that will happen too. So Again, if you're in this field to um, uh, (laughs) find answers or to uh, put your trust in every human being, probably not the field for you because it's so easy to take advantage of people's belief systems in in this field. And um, yeah, again, I only come out with the stories that I firmly believe this individual believes this happened to them. Do you have a particular story that you are more fond of? Like, is there a topic when somebody comes up and approaches you with the stories, there's a story specifically that you prefer more than, than the others. 
For me, the close encounter cases always really get to me. And I'm not talking like beings, like seeing an actual being, but like seeing a craft up close. For me, that's, and and being able to describe it uh, is really where it's at. So anytime someone tell, and look, dude, I get emails every day about lights in the sky and um, Starlink satellites <laughs> and, you know, these sort of things. And that's fine. Like, those are people who aren't familiar with those things. They have never seen a string of starlight satellites. So when they see that for the first time, it's going to be an incredible event for them until I, you know, <laughs> crash their dreams and tell them, Boom, <laughs> this is what it was. But again, like, I'm not here to say what you're seeing is aliens. I'm here to try to help you find the answers. Um, so for me, it's close encounter cases. And there's one case that I always go back to that really, really gets me. Um, to a gentleman named Scott. And uh, this happened back in, again, names and dates, I'm pretty fuzzy on, uh, on 1974. Uh, and it is in my book. And I think Scott's been on the podcast to tell it as well um, of him having a close encounter at a drive-in movie theater of all places. Um, I can go into it if you want me to. or um, Absolutely. Let's hear it. Yeah. Sure. I'll do the Cliff Notes version. Um so 74, Scott went to a drive-in with a buddy of his. They're waiting to see a movie and they go into the parking lot. Um, it's full, sold out show. They're waiting for the movie to start and um, they're just hanging out. And all of a sudden, all the lights went out at the theater, like all the big floodlights over the parking lot. The screen went black um, and everyone's like, oh, this is interesting. There must be a power outage. So everyone's like, boo, like, <laughs> we're not going to see the movie. Let's just go get wasted or something. Um, so people try to start their cars and nobody's cars would start. And that's when he told me that that's like, I'm like, okay, we're talking close encounters of the third kind here. Like, let's do this. I'm, I'm all in. And um, he went on to tell me that nobody's cars would start. All the lights were off. And then they saw like a faint glow from behind the movie screen. And all of a sudden, this massive chevron-shaped whatever thing, craft, phenomenon, it started floating over the screen and over the whole parking lot. And he said... Like, this is a massive drive-in theater. The parking lot was huge. But from tip to tip, it took over the entire parking lot above them and kind of shadowed everything. And um, the way he described it was it was a seamless, slick, black, glassy craft. And it just floated over the theater, um, excuse me, the parking lot, and then went into the distance over a field and disappeared. And as soon as it was out of sight, Boom, lights come back on. Um, people's cars start. And of course, you know, you think everyone would start flipping out. Some people would leave. They'd start talking about what just happened. But all Scott remembers is once the thing was out of sight, he got out of the car and he went to the restroom and nobody was talking about what just happened. And then he looks back, the movie starts. He gets back in his car. They watch the entire movie and then go home. But nobody, nobody was talking about what just happened with this massive UFO that went over there. And again, I'm just like, what the hell? Like, what is this? Nobody's talking about this crazy thing that just happened? Like, was there some sort of instant amnesia? Or what's going on here? I'm like, all right, Scott. Well, um, you know, 
give me your buddy's info. I want to hear his side of it. And he's like, I haven't talked to him since that night. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, well, anyone else there you remember seeing like friends or anything? He's like, dude, like I'm the only one who remembers this thing happening. There was nothing in the newspapers. And I'm, again, that's kind of where invest you go into investigator mode and you're like, huh, nobody else came forward. Um, and I did, I went to the local newspapers. I tried to find any, anything about this event happening that night at this theater. Um, of course the drive-in's gone at this point. Um, so I'm like, this is resting on this one guy's shoulders. I don't know. Like, what do I make of this? But, um, he was so descriptive and so shaken by the event. I'm like, something happened to this guy. I mean, he was a former like coast guard and, um, and he's, he's been through a lot. Like he's, he's a, he's a good guy. I, I firmly believe something happened. Um, so I put it in the book. And I thought maybe, maybe someone else will read it or hear about it and come forward. And, um, you know, no, nothing happened for a while. But finally, I got an email in my junk folder of all places um, that usually I just delete those immediately. But I saw the subject line and it said, drive in movie theater UFO. And I was like, what, what is this? <laughs> and I, I click on it and it was this woman, uh, Cynthia who said, hi, I read your book. I live in Ohio and I think I saw what that guy saw in your book. So it's just like, finally, wow. I have someone else who can corroborate this. And I can tell this guy that, yo, I don't think you're lying. I don't think you're crazy. Someone else saw this thing. And she went on to describe it very similar to what he saw. She said her boyfriend worked at the drive-in theater and he saw it that night. And I'm just like, wow, okay. Finally, finally, I can give this guy some closure. How good was that movie they were watching that everybody just said, right? oh, what were they watching? We came out, <laughs> Star Wars wouldn't come out for another five years. Right, exactly. So he couldn't say it was a Star Destroyer or anything like that. I don't know, man. But that one always hit me. It affected Scott so deeply and personally. Yeah. And I'm still working with him to this day to like kind of unravel this. Because again, he didn't even remember it happening until um, years later. He saw a UFO book and he had a memory triggered and that's when it all came flooding but back. So, so uh, many people know, have man. that happen to them. So many where they see something yeah. they don't talk about for years. All of a sudden they're like, Hey, remember this? Oh yeah. Yeah. I wonder what's going on there. The fact that we're all, we all have this weird amnesia whenever yep. there's like a sighting. That's so weird. I mean, there's something obviously going on with, you know, our thoughts Something. or, or something's being yeah. blocked out. I'm not sure what it is. I'm not cool with it, but uh, not much we can do <laughs> well, about it, right? You brought up valet, and that guy has gone deep into this control system that these crafts seem to have, yeah. this sort of control mechanism, able to control emotions or uh, memory even, or even perception of what's going on. I've interviewed mothers and daughters who've seen the same craft but experienced it completely different i talk about that in the book too you know this mom saw a triangular ufo and um her daughter was with her and the mom said she felt euphoric and she was in awe and it was amazing and the craft the triangular craft was silent um floating above her 
And then she looks over at her daughter and her daughter's on the ground covering her ears, saying how unbearably loud the craft was and that she felt like it was terrifying and she was, she felt imminent threat. So again, it's like, what is going on here? These people are having completely different perceptions of seemingly the same singular event. Um, And, you know, you could make many arguments, you know, maybe the, maybe the kid had a better, um, you know, Maybe there are certain vibrations or frequencies that the kid could hear that the mom couldn't. Uh, but again, you're going back to some sort of control mechanism that these crafts seem to be displaying. Um, people describe craft changing right in front of them, almost amorphous in a way. So I don't know. I can't pretend to have an answer, but the cases just keep coming to me. Chuck Zikowski told me a, a good one, and he said that um, there was this girl who ended up going with, with her friend's family to go camping. She's she has asthma, so she takes her pump. So right before they go to bed at like it's like midnight or something, she takes her inhaler. Well, about an hour or two later, she wakes up and there's this pink mist all over the uh, campground, like inside the tent and everything. There's this pink mist, and she's trying to wake up her friend. Her friend won't wake up, so she gets out of the tent and she sees two grays by the picnic table. And the minute that they see her, they start running. And he says they run really weird. They run like Frankenstein. They put up their arms forward like Frankenstein and they kind of waddle. Uh, <laughs> and so they just ran. But they're saying like everybody else was knocked out. Nobody would hear her screams. And it, it this had something to do with this mist. But she, because she took her inhaler, they think that whatever it is that she took, the medicine prevented that mist from knocking her out. Interesting. Right? <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Who would have known that, um, you know, asthma patients would be the ones to... <laughs> well, because we always wonder, like, what knocks the, the people out? Like, what makes it that the people that are right next to you cannot hear you scream or even the pets? Well, somebody says, well, yeah. there's a pink mist before, you know, they come in. They just knock out the people they want and take, you know. So I thought yeah. that was interesting. It's That's very interesting, man. And, you know, there's the gentleman, Mike Clellan, um, who you should definitely interview. He's the owl guy, if you haven't heard of him. He's the one who, um, he's written a couple books now about how UFO, excuse me, owls seem to play some role in the UFO phenomenon, whether, um, you know, preceding an event or uh, being somehow connected to the UFO phenomenon, a messenger of sorts. Um, You know, and you have the whole thing of owls kind of being a screen memory of what these aliens are. And, um, you know, when they're seen, they morph into what a human might be familiar with, maybe an owl. Um, Or you've got the whole lore with Twin Peaks and the owls. The owls are not what they seem. So they they seem to play some sort of vital role in all of this. And um, this guy, Mike, he had an experience when he was a kid, not a kid, a young adult where he woke up in the middle of the night, um, saw some weird light outside his window. He looks out and kind of like you said, there's two grays, two gray beings walking towards his home. And you would think, uh, get a bat or something. Something's about to go down. And what happens? He looks at them and then something in his mind just said, go back to sleep. Just go back to sleep. And he closed the blind, he laid back down, and he went back to sleep. What happened after that, we may never know. But again, going back to this idea that either these craft or these maybe intelligence behind them, um, if you do believe in the grays and abductions and everything like that, I still don't know where I stand on any of that, um, that they somehow can control us. And that's 
terrifying if you really think about it. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I think valet's onto something now. Well, it's true because the thing is that it takes away the free will aspect, right? Because yeah. like, do you you don't really have free will because if they decide to show up, your free will's gone. Like, um, what book was I reading? Bud Hawkins, I think. Uh, and he's talking about how the family was taking pictures. And as the dad's taking picture of the wife and kids, they, they get to, they get taken, and the dad's just stuck there with the camera, and he can't move. Oof. And he's just yeah, suspended animation. Yeah, and like time stops. Yep. I've had cases like that too. That's man. messed up. I, yeah. oh, it is. It is, and it's terrifying. And you know, you'll hear me say I don't know a lot during this conversation, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Like we can discuss these stuff, we can hash it out, but like. Um, you mentioned UFO expert. That doesn't exist. <laughs> I'm not one. Uh, Stanton Friedman's not one. Valet's not one. We're all just genuinely interested and we're trying to make sense of these things. But none of us have the answers. And anyone who says they do, I will say those are kind of the people you want to want to run away from because um, they don't. Usually there's a they, price they tag attached don't. to their knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, look, I, 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 it's okay to make money in this field. Um, I have a Patreon with my podcast um, and stuff like that. And that's okay. It's all right to make money doing something you like and something you love. But when it comes down to, you know, 6,000 bucks and I'll vector in a UFO with some flashlights for you. That's where I kind of draw the line. Snake oil. That's what Um, it is. Snake oil. Yeah. And sleazy, right? Yeah. And it's always been there and it always will be with this topic because for a lot of people, ufology is a religion and you will pay for answers and you will pay for someone to give you those answers Um, because life without, uh, without answers uh, is chaos. And that's terrifying for a lot of people. So if they can't make sense of their abduction experience or their UFO experience, I'll pay someone to give me the answer so that I can move on with my life or it might, um, enhance my personal beliefs or uh, belief systems. And again, there will always be people there willing to take your money to do that for you. So that's why I say I don't know a lot. And that's why I don't try to tell someone what they experienced. Because again, I wasn't there when it happened. I don't know what it was. But let's at least have a conversation about it, which is uh, becoming more common nowadays. UFOs are going mainstream. And this topic is more normal than ever. So I'm so excited to be a part of that generation that is going to see that paradigm shift. Oh, it's changing big time. It's changing big time. Yeah. And I could tell that just by, uh, you know, what's going on in the news right now. I mean, they're covering it more seriously than they ever have. You know, in the yeah. past, they would always make mockery of it or, and here's one for you with a big cheese on their face. Like, I mean, that would just set up and destroy. I always felt yeah. bad for the people after that. Because, like, how do, you, how do you do a serious interview after somebody just introduced you like that? Like... And you with the X Files music behind it, yeah, yeah, yeah. or the yeah. Shh, flying saucer uh, sound effects and whatever. Uh, they've ruined a lot of people's lives over that yeah. crap. I remember even Oprah when she had uh, John Mack on with those abductees, and just the look of people's faces like mm, just that little, it was rough. yeah, it was rough. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, thank god, well, it's 2021, we could get away with talk of this stuff without worrying about losing our careers, but. Man, so many people yeah. have been affected. And like I said, this whole Me Too is coming. 
of people that have had their lives ruined, silenced, threatened, all that. All those people are, are going to come out of the woodworks. There's going to be a... Well, yeah. And I, I, I didn't mean to, to trip on your words there, man. Mm-hmm. I think that's an extremely important observation. Uh, things are changing. And, you know, you look at something like there was a hypothetical book written by Bryce Sable and uh, UFO historian Richard Dolan about um, AD, after disclosure, what happens after we finally have the answers or that craft lands on the White House lawn? Like, what are the, what's the aftermath of something like that? And none of us truly know, but they went, you know, bit by bit. How would it affect the economy? How would it affect religion? How would it affect our military? Um, Everything, everything would change. And I think, you know, that's, that's hard. That's hard to process something so existentially um profound that it would literally shake the entire foundation of everything we know is reality um so i think that's where a lot of this kind of rides is why why are people not willing to look at the ufo topic and why was that ridicule and stigma there for so long and i think it's a fear like we 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 know the military denied it for so long because they didn't want to think that uh, they didn't want people thinking that they didn't control our skies and that they didn't know what was going on and they didn't know what crashed in Roswell. Um, But they can cover up the information that gets out, even if they don't know what it was. And I think that's where a lot of this lies too, with the, the current um, stuff going on with the Pentagon. Like I see so many UFO people being like, yeah, we're finally getting the information from the government. We always wanted. And I'm always hesitant because I'm like, the same government you didn't trust for the last 75 years because they literally covered up the first major UFO event in modern UFO history, Roswell, and lied about it. This is the same government you're trusting. Okay, I just want to make sure we're on the, on the same page here. Um, and that's troubling. And you'll see a lot of the old UFO guard very, very hesitant to believe any of the stuff with the Pentagon or Lou Elizondo or um, you know all the stuff going on. And I understand that. Um, someone who's sort of in between. I'm kind of on that cusp of um, the old guard and Gen Z. I'm somewhere in the <laughs> middle. Gen yeah. X, like we said. I'm a kid from the 90s. So I'm I'm hesitant like the old guard, but I'm also very hopeful that finally we are getting some transparency. And I do believe there are people in government who do want the public to know what's going on. I truly believe that. But it comes down to those bigger questions of not, UFOs existing. Like our government has acknowledged that. They've admitted yeah. that. Now it's those harder questions. Who are they? What do they want? Are they a threat? And I think that's kind of where we're at right now is so many people think they know the answers. And so many people are on other every, you know, the spectrum is huge. You got one guy saying aliens are peaceful and benevolent. And you've got the government saying, no, they're a threat. They're shutting down our nukes. Like we got to be careful. And um, I always believe the answers lie somewhere in between. And do you think there'd be two disclosures? There'd be the the human disclosure, not just the U.S., but other countries stepping up and saying yes, we have a problem. Um, so human disclosure, and then their disclosure, meaning whether we can make contact or whether they, you know, I don't know. I keep thinking like scenes from movies, like Independence yeah. Day, when they appear in every big major you know pyramids and uh where is it uh france it's always the uh big monuments that we've built that's where they show up yeah uh, so that's yeah. always what i see in my head you know as big disclosure moment but that might not be it you know there might be something completely different and 
you know, might be more cerebral. Maybe we'll all get the same message at the same time. Yeah, that's such a good point, man. And sorry, I went on a tirade with that last question. Loved it. I'm sorry. No, loved it. <laughs> okay. That's what this podcast right, is for. Cool. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. You mentioned but, Lou. Uh, you mentioned yeah, Lou. Yeah. Man, that guy's been attacked as of late, and I think it's absolutely stupid. Um, <laughs> it. The thing is, he's... Um, He's become a bit of iconic uh, character because, like, you know, his hat with the goatee. You know, I said as much on, on, on Twitter, like, you got that iconic look now. Like, I don't see him changing yeah. it. It would upset me, right? So that's when you know it's like an iconic look. Um, yeah. But, yeah, no, he's been attacked. And I think, you know, uh, even Senator Harry Reid having to come out and say, no, he, I put him there. Like, here's my signature. It's done. Yeah. But the fact that we even have to deal with that or even pay attention to somebody who like, and like I said, most of the time when you got a debunker, some guy just at home typing on his computer, he hasn't researched shit. You know what I mean? He hasn't gone in the field. Like um, it used to drive Stanton Friedman so mad because he would have these guys trying to debunk his stuff. They didn't do half the research he did. You know, he'd fly down yep. to Mexico or New Mexico and do all this stuff. These guys are just sitting at home, air conditioning, writing, oh, I don't agree with his theories it used to drive him nuts and i could only assume that for lou must be the same thing like it's it's got to be driving you nuts but i don't think he's going to back down anytime soon i mean he's a fighter right so he is and he spent his whole life fighting uh whether physically literally or uh within the intelligence communities and he knew i guarantee you i can't say this you know uh verbatim but I, i i feel that he knew this would happen if he came out like people would try to uh, debunk him or discredit him. And they did, they tried at least. And I don't think they succeeded personally. I know there are many people who still don't uh, believe it or trust it or, or whatnot. Um, I am on the side that I think this guy has genuine interest and curiosity. He was hired to run a program about it. And this seems like a guy who has, he gives whatever he does a hundred percent. And you've seen that throughout his career and what he has shared with the public. And I firmly believe that's the case with this as well. Now, you know, there will always be things he can't share. And he is an intelli- former intelligence agent. So he knows how to spin a sentence <laughs> and, um, and whatnot. So there will always be people who will read too much into what he says or not enough. And he still has his security clearance. So that's why he is so vague with certain things. You know he wants to tell you, but he legally cannot. And um, so, yeah, man, he gets a lot of hate. Look, I've interviewed him. Um, we've texted a few times. I've had some phone conversations with him. And again, for me, it comes down to a gut feeling. And while maybe I will eat crow and he is a complete disinformation agent, <laughs> a la Rick Doty, and he's been lying to us all along, if that ever happens, I will definitely own up to it. Oh, but my gut... Yep, I know. Man. My gut tells me Elizondo just wants answers like the rest of us. And I think he knows that the Pentagon he worked for does not have those answers. And that's even more terrifying. Um, so let's try to do it. I think he firmly believes the UFO community is made up of very passionate people on other end, on either end of the spectrum, whether debunking or believing. And um, there are some very brilliant people And you see that in the scientific coalition of UAP studies. You see that in MUFON and field field investigators. And these are civilians, whether they're, you know, um, every walk of life person investigating or there are scientists out there independently researching. 
These are smart people. So why not let them work with the Pentagon on trying to find answers? And that's what they're trying to do. And I think that's awesome. Like the work, the government works for us. We should, we pay them. They should. I think they've lost sight of that in many areas uh, in the world, but uh, let's work together, man. That's what I, that's what I always say. Peace and love. Let's go back to the hippie era. We can all, together on this well especially this issue because it involves all of us i mean if we're talking about intelligence uh, of another location whether it's another dimension or whether it's from another star system really it's irrelevant it, the fact is we have to communicate somehow so get our shit together before we're able to talk to them right and i think that yeah. maybe a lot of people i mean the theme i've had a lot of themes on the consciousness aspect of things and people keep saying like has something to do with us. They're waiting for our consciousness to come to a certain point. Then we can mm-hmm. accept it. And I, I totally get that because uh, growing up in the eighties, I was mentioning that to my wife. It's like, I remember like people yelling at us, you know, like adults and stuff like that, yelling at us as kids and like the most rude, inappropriate things that nowadays, I mean, people would be out there with their cameras or their phones <laughs> recording it. But back in those yeah. days, you weren't held accountable for that stuff. And I, even being French Canadian, I remember things that were said to me as an eight-year-old that I couldn't even fathom as an adult saying to an eight-year-old that I don't know, right? Yeah. So the world is changing uh, in a sense of like, we're respecting each other more. We're understanding each other more, more so than we ever have. And I think the internet played a huge part in that. Right? Yeah. My kids watch TikTok all the time. <laughs> no, that's a uh, look, man. The internet is good and bad. It's been that way since its inception, and I do agree with you. I think there's, it's in, it's incredible that you and I can be having this conversation. I'm not even on the mainland right now, and we're like, you're in Hawaii. I know, yeah. <laughs> and we're crystal clear communicating right now, and that's I never thought I would see that. Um, in at least you know, as a naive twenty something, but we're doing it, and that's incredible. Um. And there's a lot of bad that comes with that too. Like we won't get into politics and all that crap on Twitter, but that's a thing. And a lot of people are very black and white and it's uh, made us very, uh, you know, divisive, especially in the United States. But I think what you said we have to keep in mind is I don't care what your politics are. If If we can agree on, ufos and like have a conversation and this topic this profound mystery could change the world who gives a crap about this president i guarantee you the phenomena doesn't care about our nation's borders or who our president is um or who our world leaders is like those things don't even matter to them so I they mean, care about the dumb, dumb weapons we have, but they don't care right. about the other stuff. Right? right. Yeah. So I think, again, it's reflective of us as humans. So the more we come together and the more we show whatever intelligence is out there that like we aren't on this planet to kill each other or kill our planet. Um, we want to be part of the Galactic Federation. Like we do, we really do. I have, I have, so bad. yeah. Um, yeah. maybe they'll finally be like, okay, you're ready. Let's come down yeah. and talk to you. Them. Guard this moon. There yeah. you go, humans. <laughs> That's what you get. You get the moon. Exactly. First big assignment. <laughs> now, before I let you go, got to talk about, uh, book number two. Um, you're coming out with, uh, somewhere in the skies. Did you, there's another title behind that though. And I forgot it. Oh, that's fine. But, um, so yeah, I come out, I came out recently with a second edition. Um, the only difference in title was, um, 
the original subtitle was a human approach to an alien phenomenon. And I changed this one to the UFO phenomenon uh, because I think it kind of opened up, you know, the conversation a little bit more. I don't know if we're dealing with aliens or not. So, um, and the whole world changed when, in terms of UFOs between the editions of my book. Um, I wrote the first one before that, you know, major New York times story broke and the conversation has changed dramatically. So that's kind of what the new edition was for to, um, you know, catch up with everyone and, and even bring new cases forward. And how has the world changed between 2016 and, and now when it comes to this topic? So, yeah, yeah, that's, um, that was, yeah, that's a good good observation to, to make as well, especially because you wrote the book before the New York times story broke. And that was huge. It's huge, man. It changed everything. So, um, you know, the, there were new chapters in the new edition, even with some of the individuals involved with the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Nimitz encounter and, and other military UFO encounters. I got them on the record telling their human story of what they experienced with these now famous UFO cases and um, revisited a lot of the original people and maybe how their thoughts or observations have evolved or changed. And um, yeah, it was a very rewarding experience. I told my publisher, like, if I'm going to come out with a second edition, I don't want people thinking I'm just doing this for like money right. or like what I would only buy a second edition if I was in college and I was forced to, you know, for the textbook. But um, I wrote 80,000 new words in that nice. second edition. It was literally a new book. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I hope people like it and will check it out. And um, I'm always writing, working on a follow up as well. <laughs> I'm not here just to tell the stories. Like I'm trying to find answers to, and um, I have my thoughts, feelings, uh, beliefs have changed dramatically in, in terms of my research and interviewing all of these people. And I have to thank them again. Like I might've gone in just wanting to get a, a story from them, but I came out on the other side being like, wow, like this kind of shook my foundation. And again, when you're having like these trained observers in the military having these profound experiences, um, putting that up against the everyday civilian witness um, and finding the commonalities. Like it's, it's profound. It really is. And um, it has changed my whole outlook on life, not just on UFOs. Like it's given me hope in humanity. It's given me, um, you know, hope in our science and our evolution and consciousness and everything in between. So but you've also given them a voice, like a, a place to be heard or a place to hear. Like I said, it's, it, it's so important that people know that there's a place that they can go. If their story is that let's say they want it out, uh, that they could contact you and potentially be able to share their story. I think that is brilliant. Now, if there's somebody's, let's say there's a couch, uh, sleuth right now who wants to get that final push to get kind of get off the couch what would you tell that person about just getting motivated to get up and and go i would say now is the time if you've ever had an interest even a passing interest in ufos like just just look into it and hey it could be a rabbit hole i mean welcome to the internet and welcome to you know 2021 the the decade of conspiracy theory i guess but um just do it like no one's gonna laugh at you um things have changed so much and that's why i didn't really talk about my own sighting for a long time because even back then it was still there was a stigma attached to it but that's changing so much and i have so many people that um i haven't talked to in decades like reach out to me and be like 
hey, what's going on with all this Pentagon stuff? Or, 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 hey, yo, I saw something the other night. Could you maybe give me an idea of what we're dealing with? And these are like people I knew in middle school that I haven't talked to in like 20 years coming at me being like, I just saw a UFO. So I think that's amazing. So um, if you have any interest in this topic or you want, um, you want to get more involved, I would highly suggest uh, podcasts. And I don't just say that because I have my own, but like, dude, I listened to your interview with, um, with Richard Hoffman and uh, Kevin Day, and there were nuggets in those interviews that I have never heard before. So you're going to get something out of everything you look into, and then you can build your own case and form your own thoughts and opinions and, um, and then bring it out to the world and have a debate or like talk to another researcher about it. So if anyone's interested, reach out to me. I am all over the place on there. I know you are as well. Um, and just know that like, we're not here to tell you that aliens are visiting from Zeta Reticuli. We're trying to understand a phenomenon that nobody has the answers to. And there's probably a million different answers to. So don't take one person's word for it. That's my one, one word of advice to that couch sleuth out there. Um, do the research, do your own work before you rush to judgment and call people crazy or stupid or, or whatnot. And I do that sometimes too. And I'm trying to learn to uh, temper that and um, have an open mind, have an open mind because you're going to have your mind blown many times. Uh, but also be careful. You know, my tagline on the podcast is keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the sky. So, and I kind of stole that from Travis Walton, the dude who didn't keep his feet on the ground and got sucked <laughs> up into a UFO. So I have him to thank for my slogan, but I think it's true. You know, just yeah. keep one foot down and, um, and, and whatnot, but always, always want more. There's so much out there that I think we don't know. And I, uh, I think that's pretty cool. Awesome. Ryan, I thank you so much for your time. I know that you're on vacation, so I do appreciate that you uh, allowed us to have you on the podcast today. So are you going back straight to the podcast or are you taking a break again? So um, I, I am on hiatus uh, recording wise, but I've got enough back uh, interviews that I will not be taking a break um, with the show. I will have new episodes every week. But um, yeah, I'm very lucky and fortunate. Uh, my, my partner's parents live on Oahu. So every chance we get to escape New York City, we uh, we come out here and just hang and chill. And I'm working on a new book, like I said, so I'll be doing that for the next couple months here in Hawaii. But other than that, man, I'm um, I'm listening to shows like yours. I'm a I'm a newfound fan. I love everything you're doing. Oh, thank and, you. <laughs> um, of course, brother. No, you you know what you're doing. And I highly respect that. And I, it was my honor. <laughs>